Hello and welcome to a stormy episode of The Green Canary. Yes, this week we are again talking about the wild weather and its links to climate change. We're also going to be talking about how we could much better spend the vast sums of money that go towards fossil fuel subsidies. Now, we've also got a great interview with some Tassie Enviro scientists who've sort of become entrepreneurs and they're making electric vehicles affordable. Hooray for that. We are also going to wade into an age-old debate about whether fish feel pain. Well, do they? Well, you'll have to stick around till the end of the episode to find out. And that is our click bait for the week. Oh, God. <laughs> Started, started early this week. Off How podcast. did you manage that even? I don't even know. But look, there's a whole lot more on the podcast. I'm Ant Sharwood and that person butting in as usual and feeling pain. I know Elfie feel, feels pain when I make terrible segues or puns, uh, but that is Elfie <laughs> Scott. And uh, Elfie, how are you? And geez, have you dried out at all with all this Sydney rain? Oh God, you better bet I have not. My apartment is looking moldier than ever. And, <laughs> yeah. and that is just the curse of where I live in Sydney. It's fine. We're getting through it, but we've broken some records this week, haven't we? Yeah, we have. And, um, you know, we do we do bring this uh, podcast to you from the uh, land of the Eora Nation, i.e., Sydney or our part of Sydney, and um, we seem to bang out, bang on about the Sydney weather quite a lot. But it has been remarkable this year. We have exceeded our uh, all time or all time since records started being kept in 1858. So in 164 years, we have not had a wetter year. For those who absolutely love statistics, we've exceeded 2200 millimeters. The the, the old uh, record was 2190 odd. Ah, um, there you go. It's a, it's a lot. Uh, it, it's really a lot. There's even a chance this year that Sydney could break the record for the wettest year on record by any capital city. So we could have. Oh, wow. Yeah, it could be a wetter year here than Darwin has ever had, um, which is just remarkable because although Darwin only sees rain half a year, that half a year is so wet mm. that it dwarfs anything any other city in Australia has seen, perhaps until now. So, look, um, we're going to move on to Hurricane Ian for our first story and talk about the climate effects of that. But before we do, I would like to comment that uh, although we have seen back-to-back -back La Niñas, in fact, back-to-back-to-back, -to -back -to -back, this is the third um, La Niña spring, um, into summer it'll last probably, but there is no doubt that that uh, human-caused climate change is making the atmosphere more capable of maintaining more moisture in events like this and making such events wetter and much more likely. So uh, mm -hmm. it's a climate story, but for most of it living us, uh, most of us rather, Elfie, living it day-to-day, it's a mold story and yeah. <laughs> unfortunately for a lot of people it's a flood story as well so so yeah. you know, we send best wishes to anyone who's sort of underwater yeah yeah absolutely and you know what when we look at stories like hurricane ian i'm not going to complain about the severity of a little bit of mold in my apartment because this is quite a impactful story really and i think that we have to talk about the climate impact on this particular storm so at this point the death toll of hurricane ian has risen to over 130 people um people in the past few days have started returning to inspect the damage after the category form storm swept through cuba florida north carolina and virginia 
Florida was obviously the hardest hit. I think that we all saw those headlines and videos on social media and things like that emerging. It is the 23rd deadliest storm in US history and it's left between 28 and $63 billion worth of damage. Although I actually did read that that was even perhaps an underestimation because they are saying that it could go into the hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah, you, yeah. you don't really know um what the damage bill is in, until um, months or even years later, sometimes with these things. But um, mm. I was actually looking at stats, Elfie, of, of Florida hurricanes, and it's um, the sixth strongest that they've experienced of, of the 38 major hurricanes that have been recorded since the 1850s, um, which again seems to be when weather uh, stats started getting good. I was just talking about Sydney's records starting in 1858. Well, yeah, right. I have to find out what happened in, in weather technology in the 1850s <laughs> that, that we started recording things. But look, so there have been 38 hurricanes that have uh, struck for Florida since the 1850s, but but three of the top six have been in the last few years. So, um, you know, that really brings us to the fact, doesn't it, that, that uh, we know that hurricanes are getting stronger. Now, hurricanes are one of the most complicated meteorological phenomena. Um, there are not necessarily more hurricanes. It's a really tricky one. Um, but uh, because we're always talking about frequency and severity with things like floods and bushfires, but hurricanes are such a fantastically complicated weather thing that um, it's unclear yet as to whether we are seeing more. But what's so clear is that when we get one, it's much more likely to be a Cat 4 or Cat 5 like Hurricane Ian was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there has been like more research, especially around like North Atlantic hurricanes, yep. particularly. Um, apparently there's something specific about the way that you can measure the building impact and severity of those storms across the Atlantic that links them uh, more strongly to climate change than other we weather events. So uh, I've read research that uh, Katrina, Irma, Maria, Harvey, Dorian, and Florence, all hurricanes, which you've probably heard the names of, they yeah. together account for half a trillion dollars in damage. And it has been said definitively that they were made more intense by climate change. And we, there are like these ways that scientists now uh, can measure the rising temperature alongside the amount of water that storms hold as well so that you can sort of inextricably measure the impact that climate change has on the severity of these storms and I think that when we hear stories like this it's just a reminder to say you know like climate change and burning fossil fuels they don't they're not just some like <laughs> nebulous events you know what <laughs> I mean they actually have like real literal on the ground impacts and this is what we're seeing already that's well said and i just want to um i just want to chuck one more at you on mm -hmm. the hurricane thing before we move on and that was hurricane fiona which which is was in late september and it preceded uh, ian only by a week or two um it struck eastern canada elfie it went up and took out places um i think around Nova Scotia, places like that, Prince Edward Island, the eastern Canadian provinces. Now, you are talking about areas that are further north than Hobart is south. So if if it was the southern hemisphere, oh, you would right. be talking about a hurricane that struck south of Tasmania. That is how powerful these storms are and how much kind of oomph 
to use a non-technical word that they have as, as... <laughs> no that's what scientists say they rate them out of oomph <laughs> yeah oomph um as they move up that coast so look there are different weather patterns over there there, there are reasons why hurricanes have traditionally tracked further north there than they tra track south in australia let's not get bogged down in really boring nerd meteorology <laughs> but, but suffice to say they haven't seen one that strong that far north before that also tells you something yeah, totally. And now let's talk more about fossil fuels now that we've spoken about their yeah. impacts. <laughs> it's a classic ant segue. Um, so we are going to be talking about what fossil fuel subsidies can pay for in Australia, according to the Climate Council. So the Climate Council, who we bring up so frequently, I'm so sorry, but we do love them. Um, they have released a report recently about what could be done with the $11.6 billion in total across Australia's state and federal governments that are used for the fossil fuel subsidies um, and, you know, what sort of infrastructure could actually be built with that amount of money. Kind I of thought, fun. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, I thought they just did some terrific work here. I mean, it absolutely just puts it into all sorts of perspective. Um, let's run through a couple of them. Um, we could see 1.5 million low-income Australian households fitted with solar systems. That'd be a good thing. Yeah. Um, we could see 130 batteries the size of Victoria's big battery. I love the way it's called the big battery. Right? <laughs> you know, and it's, yeah. it's, near, it's near Geelong where they have the great, that, that really great road along the ocean that's called the Great Ocean Road. All of these <laughs> names that were just created just before lunch, you know what I mean? Like They were just decided, like, everybody break, it's done. Yeah. Big battery, <laughs> that'll do, goodbye. Yeah. But, but getting the idea, we could, we could, we could uh, have 72,000 EV charging sites we're about to talk about EVs and that'll be great, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is one for every 12k road in the country. We could replace diesel buses in our cities and, and have electric vehicles instead. The subsidies can go a long, long way if they were put elsewhere, this $11.6 billion, I'll say it again, uh, that the state and Fed uh, governments used uh, to subsidize the fossil fuel industry. They could go a long way, couldn't they, Alfie? Yes, 100%. And I think that it's really interesting that this report comes around the same time that there has been a lot of uh, newspaper coverage about the way the federal government is currently sitting on $1.9 billion that was set aside by the Morrison government to subsidize fossil fuel developments. So that money was set aside without ever being formally committed. It was just sort of you know, placed in a little piggy bank somewhere. And now we have this $1.9 billion that could ostensibly go towards fossil fuel developments, but could also be redirected towards more productive things. And that's what the uh, environmental groups and also the Greens are calling for at the moment. They say that there's a very strong opportunity for this cash to be used by the Albanese government uh, in the very shortly upcoming budget for actually productive and green things. So it will be interesting to see if that's what it goes towards. I can I can sense a green a, a green aspect of the budget episode coming up here on the Green Canary. And uh, I just want to say to the listeners, we're going to make that interesting because budget coverage, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't, I don't know if we're going to have to wear yellow caps with twirly things on them. I don't know how we're going to make that <laughs> But um, we are. So... Everyone out there, please don't go, oh, I'm not listening to the budget coverage. Or maybe we'll hide it. Maybe we'll, we won't put the word budget in the headline. Yeah, maybe we'll just like replace it with another word. 
green uh yellow yellow hats with twirly things that's what we're yes talking about. exactly <laughs> um, okay all right so look um this 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 is a, a good provocative piece of work by by the climate council and uh you know adam bant is just being adam bant uh that's what adam bant does he's saying to the government to axe these zombie fossil fuel subsidies and boy if there is a uh, cartoonist out there who has not drawn zombie fossil fuel subsidies in a newspaper today <laughs> then what even are you doing for a living <laughs> Maybe you can get onto that ant in your spare time. <laughs> I can't draw, Elfie. I'm I'm like challenged when it comes to drawing. But if I was a cartoonist, I would be drawing a zombie fossil fuel subsidy in tomorrow's paper. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll look forward to that. And in the yeah. meantime, let's talk about electric cars. We bloody love talking about electric cars here. We speak about them too much. But we are going to talk about something very interesting today because that is an electric vehicle startup from Tasmania. It was started by three environmental scientists um, and they have just received $10 million in, in investment rather from Boundless, which is a philanthropic foundation backed by Mike Cannon Brooks. Uh, they're called the Good Car Company and they were founded back in 2019. They have this intention of bringing down the cost of electric vehicles for Australians, thank Christ, because they're so expensive and it doesn't seem to be getting better anytime soon. And they have this particular sort of strategy as well to bring these big batch buys of secondhand electric vehicles from overseas and especially make them accessible to low income communities in Tasmania and Victoria. So interestingly, Ant, they say that they can make the price of electric vehicles with these secondhand vehicles sit at around $20,000, as opposed to, say, the forty dollars or $50,000 that people are currently paying. And yeah, I, I did an interview with one of the founders. You've listened to it actually already, haven't you, in advance to this? Sorry, Ant. Yes. No, no, no. That's, that's all right. We uh, sometimes do these interviews in real time in the pod and other times we chuck them in the system. And I think you spoke to Anthony. Oh, you tell me his surname. He's, he's an Anthony <laughs> like me, but it gets harder after that. Yes. Um, uh, but I, I believe you spoke to... Uh, so it was Anthony Bro Bros Van Granau. I believe is how you pronounce it. God, Anthony, please don't come for me later. I really tried. And he is the co-founder and manag managing director of the Good Car Company. So I spoke to them about what they do and what this cash injection means for them and about Australia's electric vehicle market in general. So let's just roll it. Let's listen to it. Okay. All right. So first off, I wanted to ask a little bit about the background of the Good Car Company and how you and your co-founders actually came to create it. Well, it was the night after the election, the 2019 election, and we were sitting in a pub, commiserating over a pint of beer, thinking, what are we going to do? And we were looking at, like, in Tassie, there's a, the one sector where, where emissions are growing pretty steadily is, is transport. Mm -hmm. I just think we need to do something that's going to, you know, address another term of climate failure and so we, we were initially going to convert my wife's got an old 1979 Toyota Hilux I think great we'll rip the guts out of that put an electric motor in there and you know, do it that way and see if we can start rolling that out but it, that was a lot of work <laughs> and so we had some friends who had an electric car that they uh, they told us about uh, what was happening over in New Zealand and they had like 14,000 EVs at that time 
which is pretty phenomenal because, you know, they're a tenth of the population and and ten times more EVs. So they, they pretty much just imported all their EVs secondhand from Japan. We thought, wow, we should do that too. Yeah, right. Okay, sure. And can you tell me a little bit about the secondhand market overseas and why it is uh, so useful for us here? Well, I mean, we don't have a secondhand market to speak of here in Australia. Um, electric vehicles, there's, there's a few reasons why we really like the secondhand vehicles. One is that the, the upfront purchase price is, is one of the biggest barriers for people getting into electric cars. So, you know, they're vastly cheaper. And the, the first couple of years of their use actually pays down a lot of their carbon debt, but even from the manufacturing of batteries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're, they're getting closer to being much, much lower emissions. Um, and, yeah, there's, there's prioritised supply in the countries that we're getting them from. So, whereas here we're struggling to get every single EV we possibly can into the country from from the OEM we can just kind of bypass that and just bring them in directly yeah right. so we, we're able to bring in secondhand and new electric vehicles as well which is pretty cool wow okay so it's, it's about affordability and choice sure and i mean coming from the perspective of a consumer um so i think that there's already a little bit of trepidation from australians around electric vehicles right like i think that there is this sort of barrier to get over but then to say that you know you should be able to purchase secondhand electric vehicles i think to my mind that makes me worried because i don't know anything about electric vehicles to begin with so what is the quality of a secondhand electric vehicle but Firstly, I think one, one of the big things about um, de-risking it for people is just ensuring that there's all the... Well, firstly, before even de-risking it, people people need to know that the pros and cons of EVs. So we spend a lot of time just um, providing simple, digestible information about what it's like to live with an electric car. As, as we go on and we've got more and more people who've gotten an electric car through us or, or just in general, we, we really ask and and work with them to to be ambassadors and like really give a what's and all rundown of what it's like to live with an EV. I think that's really, really important because, you know, well, firstly, none of us, none of us come from a business or sales or car industry background at all. We're all environmental scientists and have been working on profits for all of our lives. Got it. And so we... (laughs) The idea of trying to sell something to people just really doesn't sit well with any of us. <laughs> and so we, we just give the information and let people make their own decisions on it. But I think we also have to counter a lot of the misinformation that's been out there for such a long time. Mm, yeah, so yeah. there's that part. And then the other part is just de-risking it for people, especially with the second-hand cars. So we do battery diagnostics on all the vehicles and, and really thorough inspections of quality for you know mechanical and aesthetic the most important thing is the battery battery quality. And so we drill into we can get a, extract all sorts of data from it, look at individual cell health, look at how balanced the entire pack is. <clears throat> we can see its entire life history, how many charges, what kind of charges, how long those charges are for. And so from that we can extrapolate that this is a, a battery that's been well looked after and should continue to give people, you know, a reliable run also got it. Yeah, thank Then we put on the battery warranty. And 
give people the option to return the vehicle if they want uh, and a 12 months of unlimited roadside assist with NRMA that we've partnered up with and lots of support, so online support, people can just pick up the phone anytime they want to yeah. have a chat, which is cool. Brilliant. Okay. Can I ask a really silly question? But I mean, it seems interesting to me that there's such a large secondhand market overseas, especially considering like electric vehicles aren't that old in general. So I wonder why people are starting to sell them on already in these markets. Uh, well, so Japan, for example, they've got a really bizarre taxation rule, which I think you know, they, they frame it as having vehicles that are new with low emissions doesn't really make sense for the electric cars. But the, the thing is that it just creates a lot of churn and automobile manufacturing is a huge, like Toyota are massive in Japan mm. and you know, massive world over. Um, they, they have a lot of influence in being able to shape uh, national policies. And so the, the thing over in Japan with that taxation system is that every every year that you own a vehicle, it becomes increasingly more and more expensive to keep that on the road. Oh wow! Okay. And they just basically tax them out of the tax them out of the system. Wow, that's really fascinating. Okay, and can I ask, like, you've been operating since two thousand and nineteen. Do you have an yep. estimate or any like raw figures on how many vehicles you've actually sold on in Australia now? Yeah, it's just over 500 now. So we, we did 200 last year, and this investment from Boundless allows for tenfold growth. Wow. So we'll you know, be able to bump that up to, to about 2,000 vehicles for this next financial year. That's incredible. Um, can I ask about that news as well? Because that is obviously quite huge for you guys, right? Oh, it's, it's awesome, and it's a good first step. So I think... The most important thing is that it, well, finally, <laughs> uh, we're not just these crazy guys <laughs> talking about this is what, what we should be. There's it, it, faith and it's coming from, you know, from Boundless Earth and, and from uh, Cameron Adams, who's one of the founders of Canva. So having like two of the most successful tech companies in Australia, both, you know, get behind and support what we're doing is pretty damn cool yeah amazing and it's a good it's a good market signal to other companies as well or you know just that there's, there is a future in doing this and especially with our business model because you know we're not predicated on making lots of money we're, we're trying to deliver social and environmental impact it's really cool to see that you know there's still investor appetite for supporting social enterprises as well mm. so you can do good and not have to make money hand over fist and working towards this goal where we can try and bake sustainability into business. And it's really nice that we now have a political framework which is starting to be supportive of this. There's still a lot of work to do, but we're in a much better position than we were last year <laughs> for the nine years before that. Yeah. <laughs> we just had total policy and market failure. But now, I think I think we've we've almost got all the right pieces in place to, to see a massive transformation for a cleaner 
energy and transport future. Getting there, getting closer. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're doing brilliant work and thank you so much for joining us today on The Green Canary. No worries at all. So, Elfie, I have to say that that was a brilliant interview and I have to say that for two reasons. One, you always say my interviews are brilliant, even when I might have an odd mediocre one thrown there into the mix, but I actually mean it. And, you know, it, it was it was brilliant on a couple of levels. I, I love that these guys aren't used car salesmen, you know. Mm. I mean, you basically uh, interviewed some used car salesmen. That they're, not. <laughs> they're, they're not. They're 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 environmental scientists trying to make a difference. They've got some financial backing, and I love the bit about how they're actually researching the vehicles. They're actually saying, "Hey, are these cars actually any good?" They're not just getting them and doing good in the world. They hope, fingers crossed. Have we bought, you know, thousands of vehicles that are sort of going to explode after two weeks? No, they've done their proper due diligence, and I love that they've even got a roadside assist with the NRMA or whatever the um, equivalent uh, helping body because they've got a different name in each state. Oh, I didn't realise that. Yeah, in in Victoria it's the RACV and it's, it's, yeah, It's it's a different name in every state, but but you know those people that you join for a year who rock up and help you when you break down. Well, hopefully that won't happen because it sounds like these cars won't break down. So they've done their sort of research and they're they're doing good and they're doing good in a good way. Good yes. For them. <laughs> Absolutely good for them. And I thought that was so interesting what he had to say about the way the Japanese electric vehicle market was working and how there was already a churn there, which I think is so strange to think about because in Australia, we've barely even seen electric vehicles. Like you see the odd Tesla around, but we just don't see electric vehicles as regularly. Other markets, they're onto their second and third and fourth generation already. Yeah, you see it charging you see a charging station somewhere and you're like, ooh, ooh, you know, it's it's just absolutely exciting and, you know, it should just be standard. So well done them and um, I'm I really, really excited from a personal point of view because we want to get one and this might be the way in because I ain't spending 50 grand on a car, but <laughs> I I could upgrade to the tune of about 20. So yeah. Okay. All right. Well, there you go, Anthony. If you're listening, Ant is interested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll give you his number. All right. And now let's move into the mulch. These are the, are the tiny news clippings for the week, the little curiosities that we enjoy. Ant, do you want to tell me about worms? So, Elfie, uh, it seems that researchers have found a way that worms spit. And there's your ne- next uh, death metal band right there, worm spit. <laughs> <laughs> Researchers have found that worm spit can break down plastics. This might be a solution to all that plastic waste out there. So uh, the spit in question comes from a wax worms, uh, which are actually a kind of moth larvae. Anyway, uh, they break down. The spit has enzymes and it breaks down polyethylene, which is one of the most widely used plastics in the world. I think it's the most widely used. Um, does it within a few hours at room temperature. Um what this opens up is the possibility that that plastics could be reconstituted from broken down uh, materials. Now, now I don't know if you want to drink your next bottle of Coke out of a worm spit broken down <laughs> reconstituted plastic bottle, but I do. I, I, I'm not grossed out by worm spit. I'm thrilled by it. Now that you've said it so many times, it actually is making me feel sick, but it's okay. Anyway, I actually, one part of this story that I really want to say as well is the way that this was discovered, because it's so funny to me. But basically, there was a Spanish 
a Spanish researcher who noticed uh, they were clearing waxworms out of their beehive because waxworms are this sort of like worm that invades beehives. So he was, you know, cleaning up the little um, hive and putting these worms into a plastic bag. And then he noticed that the worms were not only eating through the plastic bag, there was some sort of chemical reaction happening that was breaking down the bag faster than he would have anticipated. So... That is how they figured it out. And they think that, you know, even in the future, there could be the possibility of giving everybody a waxworm kit, you know, having a little box of your waxworms to, you know, break down your household plastics. Well, it, we're far from it, but it's a possibility. I feel like we're living in one of those um, board games. Uh, I forget what it's called, but there's one where you have to tell the truth uh, or you have to tell a lie or the truth and 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 the other players have to go, nah, that's not real or yeah, that's real. Um <laughs> worm spit breaks down plastics i'm going nah that's not real but it is so there you go Uh, i lost the board game um all right next 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 uh farmed fish and here it comes yes they do feel pain don't they elfie Yes. So there are going to be new welfare rules introduced for farmed fish in Britain after one of the leading organisations that uh, has oversight over that industry accepted that fish can feel pain, stress and anxiety. So this is very interesting. I started looking into it. There are like welfare standards for certain types of fish. So basically at the moment, um, most wild fish, there aren't any welfare standards for. So you can kill wild fish by leaving them out to asphyxiate or like they gutted while they're still alive. It's pretty rough to think about. But then there are certain certifications around farmed fish that mean that they have to be stunned before they're killed. And those sort of regulations have come alongside new research that says that these animals actually do feel a lot of stress and pain. And yeah, it's just interesting to see how these standards are changing. Um, I didn't know this, but there's RSPCA labeled salmon in Australia, apparently. I don't think I've ever seen this in the supermarket, but I would love to know if anybody else has. And those are fish that have to be stunned before they're killed. All I'd say on the salmon in Australia issue is uh, read Richard Flanagan's Toxic. I have, it'll change your life. Uh, you'll, you'll, I haven't eaten Tasmanian salmon since. And, um, yeah, this whole issue makes me kind of go off seafood. Um, but, uh, look, I think it's good that that, that fish, uh, the whole issue of, of fish welfare is being brought in the animal welfare debate. It's sort of been forgotten. And I reckon the whole fish don't feel pain thing has been fish lobby propaganda <laughs> put forward for years by Big Fish uh, Incorporated. So, <laughs> I, Big I, Fish I, just makes me think of a very large tuna who might, yeah, have, like, yeah, might be the CEO of a company now. This massive tuna just sitting there smoking a cigar, just, <laughs> just you know, yeah, behind a desk surrounded what by a bastard. <laughs> Henchman, other tuna, yeah, that's right. Anyway, look, uh, I, I I like that debate and I like where it's heading. Now, mm. uh, really quickly, a couple more quick ones. Extinction Rebellion protesters have done something very interesting in Melbourne, haven't they? They've glued themselves to a Picasso painting. Uh, there must uh, be some sort of Picasso travelling exhibit in Melbourne. There is at the National Gallery of Victoria. And um, they glued themselves to the painting Massacre in Korea, uh, which is a painting that depicts the horrors of war. And it was a climate thing. They unfurled a bit of a banner. They were trying to talk about how climate breakdown will lead to an increase in conflict around the world, which it will. The resources wars are coming on a scale, sadly, that that we haven't seen before, I feel. So, you know, the water wars especially. Uh, but the resources wars with climate breakdown, it was a very interesting protest. 
it didn't stop Sydney Harbour traffic as as um you know the the other protests that we talked so much about did recently um so in a sense um it was more publicly friendly but i don't know there might be say some who say you can't desecrate art in the name of activism what do you think well i will say that they didn't glue their hands to the painting itself they glued their hands to like the plastic cover mm. on the painting so i'll forgive them that and I also think, honestly, like if I was going to the gallery to see an exhibition, I'd be like six out of 10 excited. If I went to the gallery <laughs> and saw climate protesters glued to one of the paintings, I'd be like 10 out of 10 excited. So I don't mind any of this. And I think good on you, Extinction Rebellion, for continuing to bring attention to these things. So, uh, you know. Picasso was famous for his abstract art, but you reckon there was nothing abstract about what they did. They made a clear message. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I I think, you know, as you say, the painting wasn't damaged, so it wasn't bad. Now I'll tell you something yep. that's getting damaged, Elfie, and that is the last segue to the last segment of our show today. Kosciuszko <laughs> uh, National Park is being damaged. Now, you know that that is my happy place. That is, that is sort of my sweet spot on environmental uh, issues and it is very much my sour spot when I hear that the park's being trashed again. Like there are so many ways to trash the largest national park in New South Wales. You can let tens of thousands of brumbies run free and destroy all the fragile little vegetation and animal habitat. You can uh, expand ski resorts uh, to you know and and the uh, facilities around them. There's a thing called the Snowy Activation Precinct before the New South Wales government. That was a classic John Barillaro brain fart, it must be said. <laughs> um, and you know they're trying to just supercharge some of the infrastructure there on a in a really bad way. Um, but uh, Snowy 2.0, this is a tougher one, Elfie, because Snowy 2.0 is a renewable energy project. For those who don't understand it, in 25 words or less, they're using existing dams. That's good. Uh, there's two dams in particular. And what they're going to do is pump up water from the lower one to the higher one, then run it over when there's peak demand. So they've got water cascading down, generating hydropower. It's not a bad idea on paper, but in reality, transmission lines across the park huge holes that they've they've created for more tunnels um now some of the people blew up there you've got them in the notes here uh, elfie don't you what did what did uh it was ted woodley who i vaguely know he's with the national parks association of new south wales oh he said it's like putting in a transmission line over the opera house which i think is beautifully said Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, to be clear, it is also quite a dishonest thing what has happened as well. Like, the New South Wales government amended legislation around Snowy 2.0. Um, in the 2006 plan, it originally required all transmission lines in the park to be located underground. And then there was just this amendment that just got, like, popped in. Who knew? And it says everything except those constructed as part of Snowy 2.0. So, see, see, I yeah. didn't actually know that. I was wondering, because I, I knew there was no tra new transmission lines in the park. I couldn't understand how that could happen. But the New South Wales government amendment um, is is just appalling that this can happen. I mean, this it should be a World Heritage landscape, Elfie, but it can't be. Uh, to qualify for World Heritage status, you need to have a certain amount of... Uh, land that is unaffected by any sort of human activity because um, he doesn't even closely qualify for that anymore and this is just another reason why 
Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll keep you updated on that story, I'm sure, because Ant loves Kosciuszko and he loves talking about that environment. And yeah, we'll talk about it more in the weeks to come. But for the moment, that is all we have time for on today's episode. This has been a long one, I think, Ant. I think we've been yeah. talking for a while, <laughs> but that's okay. They've been good stories. Anyway, before we head off today, we would like to acknowledge, as always, the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respect to elders past and present and acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded. Thanks, Elfie. And uh, maybe I should go in that sort of political campaign voice where they go, this this was brought to you by so-and-so of this place. Um, just to round it out really quickly, but uh, please, please subscribe to our newsletter. About 17 people did last week. Blew me away. Very good. Awesome. Uh, at thegreencanary.co for Australia's chirpiest newsletter, as we like to say. I like to keep it upbeat, but informative. Every Wednesday it comes out. You are not a canaria unless you're podding and newslettering with us. Also, don't forget to hang out with us on socials. We are at Green Canary Pod on Twitter. Thank you to all our new followers this week, edging towards a thousand, which is great. And Elfie, you are killing it on Instagram. Um, you have grown our audience there and there's lots of action there. So please get around us at Green Canary Media on Instagram. And boy, oh boy, I think we better leave it there till next week. Thanks so much for joining us. Good on you, Elfie. Good on you, everybody. We'll see you next week. All right. Bye. Bye.